2: whatsoever i just want to drop it in and put in the commercial ah welcome to heard tell okay there's a lot going on in congress we're going to go to the guy we always go to on congressional things he is the chief congressional correspondent grand poobah i don't know what they call you but you do great work for the independent sir eric garcia back on the program how are you sir
3: doing all right how you doing andrew
2: got his game face on got his suit on ready to go up to the hill and weed through the mess let me start right there though everybody's focusing on the McCarthy stuff and it's a total clown show and it's a mess. I've been doing this a while. My radar goes up when absolutely everybody is covering the same story all day for what is now going on day three of this. You're actually on the Hill though. What's going on up there that we're missing? I know the House is completely shut down, but there's a lot of other stuff going on on the Capitol right now. What's folks missing that they don't see in the coverage that's gotten a little bit navel-gazing here?
3: So what has basically gotten overlooked at this point is that uh, they cannot, I was talking about this with Ted Lieu last night, because there are technically no members, they cannot look at intelligence briefings. Uh, Representative Mike uh, Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin talked about this. Since there are no members, they can't conduct anything. They can't actually work uh, because they're all technically members elect. So this actually is um, it, 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 it is a, is a way. It, this means that there, that you know, there technically isn't a Congress. There aren't necessarily rules. What was funny is yesterday, um, my flatmate brought his dog to the hill uh, because you technically you can technically bring dogs. So there's really just um, th- there's really I, th- I think we could talk about the clown show about McCarthy, but more than that, it's just I think people are starting to get annoyed. Uh, they really just want to get to work. Uh, A lot of people want to uh, begin uh, getting to a lot of people just want to begin, you know, just just doing their jobs. And I think that I think that's the I think that's that's sort of what you're seeing right now.
2: Yeah. Eric Garcia from the Independent Congressional Reporter. Um, I think there's some interesting things to see here. Situations like this. I like to watch people's actions and see what's actually going on. I'm not interested in what they're saying at the podium. Yeah. You're seeing some real movement here on a couple levels, but let's start with the folks that aren't in chaos right now. Boy, does Hakeem Jeffries look like a million dollars right now because there was always, you know, y'all, it's always hard following the act of the legend, right? And good pattern, yeah. different, whether you like it or not. Nancy Pelosi had an iron grip on that caucus for a long time. Two different yeah. speaker. There was questions. Is he going to be able to get along with the progressives, which he's got some real life heat with? Is he going to be able to get the moderates along? Can he talk to folks? Boy, this guy looks like a million dollars right now, doesn't he?
3: Yeah, he does. Um, you know, you know, and I think one of the things that that people don't realize is that yes, he always kind of clashed with progressives, uh, going back to 2016 and when he supported Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, and he uh, and he's clashed with AOC and and a lot of the squad. But one of the things that he did, I think, that was really smart was that he is that he when he became Democratic Caucus Chairman he started cultivating those relationships immediately. And as soon as Joe Biden became president, and as soon as it became clear that this was going to be Pelosi's last run, he and Aguilar, Pete Aguilar, who's Democratic Caucus chairman, and Catherine Clark just said, we're a package deal. And they basically they basically made friendships wherever they could. You know, what was, what was interesting was that uh, <laughs> at one point, Jamal Bowman, reminder that Jeffries endorsed Elliot Engel in the primary in New York 17th I believe uh, in 2020 but then Jamal Bowman at one point said he was talking to some black republicans about endorsing the first black speaker uh, to get them reparations and of course that wasn't going to happen but he he looks like a million bucks he had everything built for him and he had, and he he really worked hard to build these relationships and now he kind of you know and, and also, to Pelosi's credit, she kind of smoothed out the carpet for him, and everybody except Jim Clyburn decided to step away from leadership. So this was basically a unanimous thing. And, you know, everybody's every, everybody's really happy with Hakeem. He looks great now, you know, because, he, because he's because he got the whole conference behind him.
2: Yeah, Eric Garcia joined us. You slid by it there, but I think it's an important point to back up for for a second. Jim Clyburn stayed in the leadership. He's got yes. a little bit different role. But going forward for the Democratic caucus that is now going to be in the minority, especially with yeah. what's going on. It looks like with our GOP friends right now. Yeah, that's a big, big deal. In fact, a lot of them were asking him to do that. And I, there's very yeah. reports whether he wanted to or not. You just slid by. But this is an important thing going forward is that he is there and he you know, th- it's not accidental. Hakeem Jeffries and him you know, the older statesman with the arm around the new guy, that's not only imaging that's important inside the party. That's purposeful.
3: That, is, that is absolutely purposeful Uh for a while. It looked like David Cicilline was going to challenge him, but then eventually he like, he, pulled back because uh, I don't think he wanted to be seen as uh, the guy who was challenging an elder statesman from the South and, and, and civil rights at somebody who worked in civil rights. But yeah, this is absolutely something. And uh, Clyburn has really been a mentor to Hakeem Jeffries, uh, you know, and to a lot of members of the CBC and the congressional black caucus. But this is also uh, let's be real. Let's be adults here. This is also a favorite to Joe Biden. Uh, you know, Jim Clyburn is mainly the, is, The main reason why Joe Biden is president right now after he endorsed him in the beginning of the South Carolina primary. So this. So let's be adults here. Uh, This is absolutely a way for Jeffries to have a mentor, somebody who you can go to. Clyburn was a whip for a long time. So this is just a little extra padding. The interesting thing, though, is that to the point about whipping uh, last night when they were trying to adjourn, Democrats wanted to keep them there just to keep the the, the clown show going. Uh, but then what happened is uh, actually two members. Uh, were not present, so they actually had to. So they actually had to adjourn. So that's going to be one thing that they're going to have to do. They're going to. They're, they're going to have to do a little bit better whipping. But so far, they're they're doing all right. So, but 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 yeah, this is absolute That's absolutely. It's important for Jeff for Clyburn to be seen as being a mentor. Like the kids aren't completely taking over the show. Dad still has to give them the car keys.
2: All right. Let's talk about the unruly kids. Eric Garcia, congressional yeah. correspondent for the Independent. But let's zoom out for a second because we get into all the political stuff and the and yeah. the, and all the machinations of it because we like it and it's your job to cover it and I comment on it. Here's the problem. Yes. The non-political populace, as much as they pay attention to this stuff, this just looks like chaos because it is chaos. There's yes. no way this looks good to somebody unless you've got a political stake in it and you're into the minutia of who's going to be speaker and who's not. Everybody else is just looking at it like this is chaos and this looks
3: bad. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny because Chip Roy has been making this point. Chip Roy of Texas, who's one of the the 20 uh, Republicans who are voting against Kevin. Uh, he says, oh, well, uh, uh, you know, people in Des Moines, Iowa don't care if there's not a speaker, you know, but I, I would postulate that. Yeah. They may not care. Like in the day to day, it may not affect them day to day specifically, particularly because, you know, Democrats passed that, uh, that omnibus last, last year, late last month. But like, you know, it does look kind of insulting to a lot of voters that they can't get their act together, that they don't even have a speaker. So maybe it doesn't affect their day to day, but it does reinforce the fact that they can't govern. And still, for better or for worse, no matter how thin the majority is, a majority of Americans voted to nominate, vo- voted to give Republicans the majority, and they can't even get a speaker. So at this point, they're like, um, excuse me, we elected you to do your job and you can't even get together and all that. So, so yeah, it does look embarrassing, uh, re- regardless of what, what Chip Roy says.
2: Now, Chip Roy, Eric Garcia joining us. Folks may not be super familiar with him. Okay. <laughs> I, I, my radar yes. goes up on. Here's another thing that goes when he started with, I'm just trying to do something in this God forsake That Hold on a second, Chip. You were Ted Cruz's chief of staff. Yes. You're well ingrained. You know, the, ga- I know it's one of those little political things we just laugh yes. off, but it, it always, that puts my antenna up because I'm like, no, no, no. You're in the game. Admit you're in the game. Yes. For folks that don't know Chip Roy, because he's probably one of the people who's, I hate to say star rising out of this cluster mess, but he does look a little better than some of the others. Like he's actually trying to do something here. Yeah. Tell people chip Roy, because you knew him before. Cause he was over in the Senate with Roy. He yeah. was a first assistant uh, attorney general in Texas. He's in that Cruz Perry Paxton, He's ingrained. Yeah. Who is this guy for folks that aren't familiar with him?
3: Yeah, so Chip Roy is really interesting. As far as I, so he was so he was assistant attorney general. But on top of that, the funny thing of it is that he is that he likes. To, is he talked about how much of a mess Washington, dude. You were born in Bethesda, Maryland, like literally just a skip and a hop over, buddy. Um, that's the Maryland suburbs. Um, so second of all, is that yes, he was chief of staff to Ted Cruz when Ted Cruz in twenty thirteen helped the Freedom Caucus, or I guess the early incarnations of the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party Caucus, be, do a, try to a successfully stage a government shutdown in an attempt to defund Obamacare. So the interesting thing about Chip is that he is, is that he is kind of a hellraiser. He does have a record of doing this he likes to you know regularly try to get a motion to adjourn usually whenever things aren't going his way he did that a lot when he was in the minority now he kind of has a little bit more uh you know he's had a few close calls in the past with his races because just the suburbs of his area are 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 getting more conservative are are getting more democratic but texas redrew the map but yeah but yeah no he has a track record of liking to stir the pot a little bit and make things difficult for House Republican leadership, he did it with John Boehner. Now he's doing it with now he's doing it with Kevin McCarthy. So,
2: yeah, uh, let's talk about some more congressional figures for a second. Meanwhile, while this was all going on, it actually got a little bit of press. Uh, Cocaine Mitch, your friend and mine, everybody's favorite <laughs> yes. Majority Leader, now the Minority Leader, uh, he was out in Kentucky with his old colleague president joe biden yes it was an amazing boy look sometimes if you're if i was a democratic consultant you couldn't pay enough money for this split screen you have mcconnell and biden dedicating a bridge cross-sectioned and the split screen is with the vote in the house of representatives i'm that campaign ad writes itself
3: yes yes absolutely it does it shows that biden You know, a lot of people said that Joe Biden was being daft when he said that he could work with Mitch McConnell, he could work with you know, Republicans, but this shows, Hey, he works with Republicans. Rob Portman, the Senator from the former Senator from Ohio was in the audience with Sherrod Brown, you know, cats and dogs sitting together. It shows that Biden can get things done. He can work with Mitch McConnell. And it also just shows that it, it, it also draws a deep contrast because it shows that the, the Senate, isn't going to bail out, McConnell, uh, gonna bail out McCarthy. And if anything, when it when it comes time to govern, when it comes time to pass a budget, when it comes time to pass even a CR or raise the debt limit, Mitch McConnell isn't gonna isn't gonna, is you know, isn't gonna walk through that door and save Kevin McCarthy. This looks really good for Joe Biden because for all of the um, meshegas that happened during the two years of Democratic rule. They did eventually come together and they could eventually work with Republicans. Democrats are saying in the House, they're saying, look, we're not bailing Republicans out on this. So that's so, yeah, it looks great for Joe Biden.
2: Yeah. Um, Here's the thing with this is, though, the normies like that stuff that us, the Internet commentators really kind of recoil and make fun of. Yeah, that's that's how Joe Biden gets elected, being the normal guy against the chaos stuff. He was not Trump. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. This plays right into his hands. If you're looking at a re-election campaign, it just does. I'm sorry.
3: It does. It does. Absolutely. It shows that like Joe Biden said, look, I'm going to govern like a normal Democrat. I'm not a socialist. Look, I'm here with I'm here with Mitch friggin McConnell. Uh, and, and they've been friends
2: know, for years. Let's all be grownups here. They've shared the many meals. Yeah.
3: yeah. They're, they're, they're old friends. They've known each other. That's the Senate, uh, the, the, the the most exclusive three-day work club. Um <laughs> um but uh, look they don't they, they don't like to work on a weekend. Um but you know, the, um but but yeah, no they're friends. They have known each other for a long time. But this does play into the hands of Joe Biden. That yeah, we we'll, we can get things done. The Republicans in the house can't get the, can't get things can't get things done. So.
2: Yeah, Eric Garcia join us. All right, let's deal with this mess in the house. Okay. I Here's the thing people roll their eyes at things like rules packages and negotiations and this sort of stuff. You've covered Congress for a while, though. That rules, second only to who the speaker and the minority leaders are, and maybe the whips, that rules package is everything. Explain is. to folks who don't understand the rules package, and we and let's. We can go back a little bit. When the Democrats took over, they made some really significant rules package fixes, and that set them up for what has happened to get us to this point. For somebody that doesn't know, explain the rules package, why that's such a life or death thing for these politicos and why we're fighting over it so much here.
3: Okay, so I think the most important of things, and this is just a development that just happened, uh, the playbook just talked about, Politico's playbook just talked about it. They're starting to, one of, the, one of the big rules changes that a lot of conservatives want is they want to just have open debate on amendments for spending bills. That could actually lead to, uh, to an absolute chaos because basically what happens is that Republicans could, is that Democrats could wind up picking off a few Republicans to add an amendment. You could have open debate there. Uh, you, you know, you can, you know, this is what everybody talks about when they talk about regular order. On top of that, there is also, um, there, there are also plenty of desires to have things like to, to have more members, more of the, the conservative insurgents on the uh, on committees. But then there's also the big one, and this is the one that everybody, and it, and it sounds, it, 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 I want to say like, it sounds arcane because it's ridiculous. There's this thing called the motion to vacate the chair. And this is the big one. So for the longest time, what happened is in 2015, Mark Meadows, uh, future White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, he was a congressman from North Carolina, Western North Carolina. He and a lot of other insurgents did a motion to vacate the chair with John Boehner, uh, which was essentially, it allows basically one member to begin a no confidence vote on the speaker. That's basically what it is. And Boehner survived that vote. But afterward, but then Mark Meadows got on his knees and kind of begged Boehner for forgiveness. Then he did it again in 2015, and that was the beginning <laughs> of the end of John Boehner. And then that was a big that was a big point of controversy with Paul Ryan because he obviously didn't want to do uh, he he didn't want to do that. Then when Pelosi took office, she raised the threshold for the motion to vacate the chair. Or when she took the speakership, then what happened is now that McCarthy took over, he initially you know conservatives again wanted that motion to vacate the chair. Then what happened is he said, okay, we'll lower it so that you only have to get um, five members to do a motion to vacate the chair. Now it's he's just doing it down to one. <laughs> Why anybody would do that is my is any, is my guess. But the, but but basically, that is the real. Aside from the committee assignments, aside from the open process for debate on budgets, that's the real uh, thrust and the nut of this whole of, the, of this whole problem. Is that they is that these insurgents want to be able to have a have a motion to vacate, be able to file a motion to vacate the chair.
2: Eric Garcia joining us, explaining this so well that even I can understand it. Here's the thing. We know McCarthy looks really weak here because he's given away the store to the point that he's not going to be able to function as a speaker. Yeah. Talk about why folks like us that kind of follow this are saying that, though, he's giving away so much stuff now. He's not going to even if he made speaker, which it doesn't look like he's going to get there now or whoever the next speaker is going to be now is even more weakened because they're not going to be able to put together any kind of a package whatsoever to have any strength in the chair, which is what you got to have as a speaker. Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the the whole point of being able to be a speaker is to be able to lead Congress. You're not just the leader of your party. You're the lead, Unlike the Senate, where the majority leader just leads the party, uh, you are the speaker of the House, and your job is to lead the entire House of Representatives. And at this point, McCarthy has basically set himself up for failure because there is bas- – as soon as – He begins to cut a deal as soon as, so so first and foremost, he won't be able to cut a deal with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden because the moment that, because they'll say, look, you can't say no to us because all you, all we need, all you need is four people to give you the middle finger in your conference and then you're toast. And, you know, at that point, you're going to have to go to the Democrats. You're going to have to go to Hakeem Jeffries and it, 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 let's be real when you're a minority leader in the house you don't have a lot of power the only thing you can really do is bang pots and pans and you know block things but but even then you can't really there aren't many mechanisms to block things like there are in the senate so this sets him up so that he's gonna be that he is toast the moment conservatives don't like something that he does even if even marjorie taylor green who's on his side if she does if he does something that she doesn't like, she can file a motion to petition to vacate the chair. He is setting himself up for failure. And then also if you are a uh on top of that you know you know we talk a lot about these 20 republicans the moderates probably are to the extent that there are moderates in the, in the house or i guess you could say governing republicans they're not going to be happy about this because they feel like mccarthy has given away the house and he's basically you know to these people who basically strapped a bomb to their chest so it is, uh, so, so he is in an impossible position where he's not going to be able to please anybody and even whoever comes into his, into that, into that role, they're going to have to comply with that rules unless they have to do a whole new rules package.
2: Yeah, Eric Garcia joining us. Here's the other thing about this. Um, I agree with everything you said. Other people are looking weak. I think one of the undercurrents that's going to come out of this though is, and this is a little bit more big picture right now, the Matt Gaetz's and Lauren Bobberts are feeling themselves. There's the infamous thing now where her and Hannity just clowned each other for 20 minutes back and forth. Now yeah. they're really feeling each other. I don't think they've realized that I think this has weakened them. I know they're holding yes. this whole thing up right now, but here's here's what's changed. The party was placating them because they felt like they needed them. Yes. Now it feels like once this is over and their passes, look the the Chip Roy Freedom Caucus guys, that's been going on since 2015. That's not a new problem. That is a- the Gates' and the Boberts and the internet famous people, that's a newer problem. Yeah. Trump couldn't move the dial on this thing. Trump can't no. get them when this is over, I think you're going to see them get isolated, cut off, and kind of left out of everything going forward. Even in the chaos of the Congress, they're going to make a lot of noise. But yeah, this is their moment of power. I think this might be their apex because I don't think anybody's going to want to fool with them after that. They- like you've even got like the New York Daily News going after them on the front page yeah. now. You've got the the party that was placating them because they felt like they needed the Trump. They're learning. Look, politics is learned behavior. They are learning. Hey. They're just going to do this. We don't need them. We can't work with them anyway. Let's cut them off. I think we're going to see a change with especially those two individuals and a couple others going forward.
3: On top of that, let's also just talk about what we're talking about. The fact of the matter is is that Lauren Boeber had a near-death experience this last election where she narrowly lost her seat. What's typically when members almost lose They typically say, hey, maybe I should move more to the center. Maybe I should be more, I should feel more. Lauren Boeber basically said, I'm going to keep doing more of what I'm doing. Um, And and, and that's it. But I think one of the other things that you're seeing is, as you you said, conservative media said, okay, fine. We'll let you have your little circus for a little bit. Now you're starting to see a lot of right-wing media you're seeing on Fox News now. You're seeing a lot of conservative commentators. You're seeing Trump say, okay, the fun's over. We gotta do. We we gotta do this. We got we gotta actually stop doing it and stop delaying this because we want to be able. A lot of people don't know why Marjorie Taylor Greene is on Kevin McCarthy's side. The reason why: a) he's gonna give her back her committees. Let's be adults. B) if you want to subpoena Hunter Biden and Merrick Garland and uh you know Ali Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary you need to do this. So I think now everybody is kind of started right-wing media, conservative media apparatuses, Trump world are kind of said, okay, stop this, cut this out. Let's go, let's get to work. And this is, and yeah, this could isolate them. And this could be something where McCarthy says, you know, ultimately, look, I can cut off three of you, you know, I don't necessarily need to give you everything you want. And on top of that, even if he was up getting this, then he could, he could immediately reneg on it. Yeah, he'll be, a, he'll get completely cleaved off and there'll be a motion to vacate the chair, but he doesn't have to leave.
2: No, Eric Garcia joining us. All right. One last thing on this big mess. We, we caught, look, we talked about this back during the campaign. If that majority is less than twenty twenty five seats, it's going to be total chaos. We're down to four seats, five, depending yes. on a couple, how a couple of things we've had a member of Congress die. They got to replace that. And yes. A couple other things going on. This looks like it's just going to be chaos for two straight years. Yes. Is there any other way to cover that? Look, let me just ask you bluntly how do you cover how do you we talk about narratives a bad thing but you got to have narratives because you have to have guardrails yeah what's the narratives that you and your compatriots when you're staying around the halls are talking like how do we cover this congress because this is going to be something we haven't really seen in a long long time y'all talk amongst yourselves like yeah you got to have had that conversation of how do we i cover literally this? was
3: having this conversation on my way home with a friend of mine who i knew from my days when i was at roll call and we were saying that like You know, for for those who don't know, a lot of congressional reporters, we cut our teeth at places like CQ Roll Call or National Journal, places that cover things like budgets and cover things like debt limit things and, and appropriations. I think our brains are not wired for something like this because we've been wired for so long to say, Okay, there's a budget process, there's an appropriations process, there's a rules package, there's, you know, a debt limit thing. This stuff is supposed to happen because this is the basic, these are the baseline functions of government. We're not talking about passing le- major legislation. We're just talking about governing. And I don't think that we know how to cover this. I'm saying this because I don't know how to cover this. And I think it's going to be really a test for a lot of us in the Capitol Press Corps how do we cover an effectively anti-government coalition that's something i don't know how to do and i'm gonna have to try to figure it out on the job
2: yeah Eric Garcia, you're the best, buddy. Appreciate you. We'll let you go because you got to get up on the hill and yeah. knee deep into the swamp and figure this bad boy out. Have you back on a couple of days. Maybe we'll have some answers. Let folks yeah. know where they can follow you. I didn't get to promote your book like I normally do, but make sure you check out We're Not Broken. It's right behind him because he knows how to market. Look at that right there. If you're watching yeah. on the YouTube, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you, my friend.
3: You can buy my book, We're Not Broken, Change the Autism Conversation out in paperback now. If you got a lot of good gift cards for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, this is a, this is a great gift. It's only $14 uh, on top of of that you can follow me on twitter at eric m garcia you can follow my work at the independent you can read my columns at msnbc you can follow me on instagram at eric m garcia 14 always fun to be on here andrew
2: yes sir we'll have you back on soon eric garcia thank you sir thank you Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, I've been wanting to talk to this guy for a while. This is the great thing about my job. I actually got on Twitter and started a radio show and podcast just so I could get all my Twitter friends on and get to meet him in real life. This be one of them. He's part of the Raspy Voice Kids, the legendary West Virginia folks. I'm happy to introduce him to you. He also does a lot of culture kind of commentary. Seasoned media professional. And although his professional life is actually going to come and play, we're talking about tonight. Brandon Phoenix, sir, great to see you. Thank you for coming on the program.
4: Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here.
2: I am too look we all saw it monday night it was terrible i was actually watching it with one of my children and my household everybody's they're not even football people and they were just sitting there wrapped for hours watching the thing this is kind of those of us that love football let's just be real we do grown folk talk here this is the worst nightmare of football fans for a long time we've always been like is, is this going to be the one they haven't had anybody you know un, god forbid pass away on the field since the 50s It's always in the back of our mind, is this the paralyzed one? Is this the one that's going to be the ultimate one? Boy, it sure felt like that for a minute, and thankfully that didn't happen. What was your reaction as we watched it, though?
4: Well, as soon as I saw it, as soon as I saw him fall, I knew the man was in trouble. There was no brace. There was no break. He was just out. And when you see something like that, it becomes really apparent that it's probably a cardiac event, not a concussion. There was no wooziness. It was just gone. He lost consciousness. And so I knew it was dangerous. And I knew it was serious almost immediately. It freaked me out too.
2: Yeah, and, and you, you've covered football for a long time. Look, I've seen paralysis on the field. I've seen broken limbs on the field. We've seen some really ugly injuries. We've seen the concussion stuff. We saw the horrible stuff with two earlier where the guy's clearly not right on the field. I've never seen anything like that. And what really hit me was the reaction to the players because, of course, they're not showing the medical stuff. When the players all walked away and turned away, And the reaction we saw, I have never seen that in any sport at all. That's when it was like, oh, God, something's up here.
4: Yeah, it was the same thing for me. A lot of these players have seen gruesome things. Like you said, you've seen displacement, um, fractures that are just insane, people's legs mangled and twisted, concussions where people are posturing and modeling. But this was different, like you said. They immediately knew something was up that was out of the ordinary, that was in a dangerous, dangerous situation situation. And the players' emotions got the best of them. They, they had visceral reactions. And then, of course, that came through on the broadcast, and the rest of us had the same thing. It, it was a very scary moment.
2: Now, one of our things on our program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. This is one of those freak things. He got hit in the chest. His heart stopped. It's a one-in-a-million thing that happened. But we got to put it in the context of everything else we've seen. We just mentioned it. The Tua stuff this year was a bad look we've seen in some of these bowl games now in football some really questionable targeting headshot kind of plays in the bowl games that have gotten a lot of play have we just not figured out there's a lot of safety stuff the NFL's doing the college games doing we're all aware of it have we still not figured out how to talk about this in a productive way
4: i don't know about talking about it because i don't know how you, i don't know how you talk about it any other way than what we're doing now it's been approached by almost every angle possible yeah, i have watched politicians Talk about it. I've watched former athletes talk about it. I've seen journalists talk about it. I think there's been ang- every angle possible has been covered. I really don't know that there is a more productive way to talk about it than what we're doing right now. Like you mentioned the safety aspect, if, you know, talking about what the NFL can do or what they've done. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is I spoke to a person today, uh, an ex football player, who made the comment that, you know, people call football a contact sport. He said, no, dancing is a contact sport. Football is a violent sport. And the sooner we come to terms with that fact, and the, the sooner we're honest about that fact, uh, the, the sooner we'll be able to have even a more expansive conversation about what's happening in the game.
2: Yeah, Brandon Phoenix joining this Raspy Kids Voice Podcast. Let's have that grown folk talk, though. The NFL isn't really a sport anymore. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's the biggest TV show on three networks. It, with the fantasy football and now with legalized gambling going wild, the demographics are changing. It's almost you know, 50-50 male-female viewership. This game is a cultural thing beyond any other sport that we have. It's just fact. That changes how we talk about it because when it's a cultural institution, now we're dealing with stuff like do we have a responsibility to the players because the players will do whatever we ask them to do. They're getting that money. They'll put their lives on the line. They'll put their bodies on the line. When do we step in and tell a grown man that he needs to be pulled back? This is some deep human stuff, and it cuts through a lot of the cultural stuff I think that's why it gets so raw with the NFL stuff. It's such a cultural phenomenon. It starts to get into other areas of our lives, doesn't it?
4: It really does. And on top of it, getting into other areas of our lives, we've all either played or know somebody who played, or we know people who play now. We talk about whether we allow our children to play. I saw a cardiologist from Texas saying that they start the kids at seven years old in full pads, and she will never let any of her four children play. Um, But we see these conversations. We see the, we have these conversations and we think about it, it's top of mind, 24-7, 365, the NFL has worked really hard. One of the things they've done really well is making making it so there's hardly any, if any, offseason. From free agencies to the draft to the actual playing of the games, they've made it so, like you said, it's a cultural phenomenon that, that is a part of every day of every American's life and beyond. Um so I just, it's just such a powerful thing. I, I heard somebody say too, there was another person that was talking about this and they were complaining that we don't talk about other social ills more than we're talking about Mr. Hamlin, you know, and what he experienced. And like I said, you know, as, as true as it is, he, he talked it up to a class thing, you know, a, a worshiping celebrity, worshiping fame and money. And I said, I think it's different. We watch these events live on television every week and you never see this. The average person does not see somebody getting CPR performed on them or see somebody they know or love having CPR performed on them ever in their entire life. But to have it on display on Monday Night Football for you know millions upon millions of people watching, thousands of people in the stands, hundreds of people on the sidelines, that's a different kind of spectacle. And it's a different kind of emotion. And uh, I totally get why we are where we are
5: with this.
2: Is it a fair criticism? Brandon Phoenix joining us. The announcers did a good job bringing it up. One of the things that made this so jarring is this seems like a young man who really has his head on straight, came from a really tough family situation, stayed home for school, was a Pittsburgh kid, was widely recruited. No, I want to stay in Pittsburgh. I want to stay local. Did all that. It seems like a great kid, right? He seems like he's done all the right things. And that's the story that you want to tell about somebody like this. But this is the only way that story got told. And there's so many players in the NFL. That's the dream, right? You rise up from whatever your circumstances of. You get that bag. You get that money. You get that million dollar contract. You get that fame. But there's a price to pay for it. But here's the thing about it, Brandon. Let's just be real for a second. I was active duty military. I knew what I was signing up for. You know, nobody made me do that, and I pay for it health wise to this day. We don't. We know our cops and our firefighters. We know our, you know, medical workers. You can pick any, construction workers end up crippled. Every walk of life has some kind of risk to it. We tend to apply it differently when we talk about our athletes, though.
4: Yeah, that's a fair point. We do apply it differently. And I think part of what's happening is you're dealing with young men who feel like they're invincible. I remember my dad telling me the story about this guy he worked with who signed up to be in the military, who went to Vietnam, who said he was so excited to get over there and start shooting people that when he and his buddy got on the ground and they're out there shooting, it wasn't until he looked to his side and realized his buddy wasn't with him anymore that the that the opposition was shooting back, and I think it happens in the military. I think it happens with athletes, where you think that you're invin, where you think you're invincible because of the testosterone, because of the youth, because of the myopic viewpoint you might have of life, uh, and then we we adopt that because not only do we watch these guys who look like superhumans, but we also haven't seen any of them go down in this fashion, and because we've watched for so long. You start to think that the game is safer than what it actually is and the truth be told this could happen at any time to anyone and it did in this case um so I again i understand it like you said his story demar hamlin's story doesn't get told because he's not a superstar you know he's a, he's a lunch pale guy he's bring his hard hat to work kind of guy he's a give back to the community kind of guy but he's not the kind of guy, he's not an Aaron Rodgers, he's not a Patrick Mahomes, he's not a household name. So we're not hearing about his story until so something tragic happens, And that's, that's a shame in and of itself.
5: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Yeah, Brian and Phoenix joining us. Let's talk about that medical response for a second because perversely enough, he had this happen in almost the perfect spot. He's two miles from a major trauma center. They have elite level doctors, literally steps away. They were on this immediately, probably saved his life. Not everybody gets that. You were talking about this on Twitter and you actually have a background on this. We were talking about it earlier on social media, CPR and AEDs. These are two things that the average person, they don't need to know anything about medicine or anything. They just need a little bit of preparation and it really does save lives. Even an elite level athlete with those, all those doctors and all that technology, it was the basics, AED and CPR, that probably made the difference here.
4: 100%. We always say seconds count, and they really do, especially with cardiac events like this. When your heart stops beating, that means there's no blood going to your vital organs, and the most vital organ, the brain. It's the command center. If there's no, if there's no blood, if there's no oxygen, you die quickly. And even if you don't die, like from a medical standpoint, you can have anoxic brain injury where the damage is done and you don't get to come back. So like you said, as as terrible as it is that he's in this position because of what he was doing, being in this position probably saved his life. Like you said, if he has this kind of accident from, or if he has this kind of injury because of a car accident or something that happened at home, he probably doesn't have doctors right there. He probably doesn't have access to a hospital right away and seconds count. So the sooner you get the sooner you get the AED the better. I like what you mentioned about the importance of having C, uh, knowing CPR. They're teaching people now to do hands only CPR where there's no breaths involved because people are so um, people are so afraid of putting their mouth on somebody that they don't know and myself included, I don't blame anyone that we just teach people just use your hands only do the compressions get that heart pumping and as soon as the AED gets there use it. And not even being familiar with an AED, they make them now so that they talk to you. Those those automatic um, external defibrillation devices talk to you. They walk you through the process so you don't have to be afraid of using them. And if you get a little bit of knowledge, it makes it even more easy because when they're talking to you, it's not the first time you're going through it. It's more of reassurance, more of uh, just following what you already know. And the more people we have that are prepared to be able to help somebody, the better they're in malls, they're in churches, they're, they're everywhere now in public spaces. And fortunately they had one there in Cincinnati for DeMar Hamlin.
2: Yeah. Brandon Phoenix joining us. That's the good part of this reaction is people get awareness of that sort of thing. His charity, uh, Hamlin's charity went through the roof on donations. That's a great thing. I saw a lot of good on social media last night and today. I saw a little bit of bad though. I, I, I think this is a good opportunity. Look, I do a little bit of a timeline cleans on my social media when I have events like this, the people that just want to instigate the cynical folks, the folks that just want to make an ugly point so they can turn around and apologize the next day. I think these are moments where we learn what people in our media, especially, especially the commentators and the talking heads. And the, I think they tell us stuff about themselves in times like this, and we should market and learn from it and start kind of weaning those folks out you've done media commentary for a while. You study media. I saw a lot of good, but I saw some real cynical, ugly stuff too. And I think some of that just, we just, as a people just need to just like, no, that's over the line for this situation.
4: Yeah. So what I noticed immediately is I made a post and somebody immediately came under my post, made a comment to the tweet I made indicating some kind of conspiracy theory without saying it fully. And like you said, people tell you who they are. And the truth is, when people tell you who they are, I believe them. I <laughs> Don't leave it up. I don't, I don't, I don't try to analyze. I don't try to make excuses. I just listen to what they said. What you say is, is what you are almost nine times out of 10 in my estimation. Um, and I agree, man, like I don't have time for people who want to make political points, who want to make um, themselves more important in the moment than the the person that's really experiencing the circumstance. I don't have time for any of that stuff. And so I don't put any time or energy into it. I really haven't given it much thought besides ignoring what was presented to me.
2: Yeah, Brandon Phoenix. All right. One of those things that needs to be talked about, and there's a debate whether folks want to talk about it or not, but I think we should talk about it. What they did during the game. Now, I'm going to give a little grace for just the logistics of putting on something like an NFL game are a myth. people that have never been to one or been behind the scenes of an event like that. It's a lot of logistics. If If you decided in a moment to shut that thing down, it would take you 20 minutes just to make all the phone calls. So I'll give a little bit of grace on that. What do you think the league does with some situation like this? Because they're going to have to address it. Obviously, safety is a huge issue with the NFL. They're spending millions and millions of dollars on it. They're doing ad campaigns about it. Where do you think they go forward with this? Not just the game, but the push for safety. Look, it's a violent sport. You're only going to make it so safe because these guys are getting bigger and stronger. If you've never been on the sideline of an NFL or high level college game, you just do not, TV does not do justice how fast this game is. You've been on the sidelines. You know what I'm saying. You can speak on it. Where do they go with the messaging to the safety stuff? We know they can't get it completely safe, but they're going to have to address this somehow, right?
4: Yeah, because the problem isn't so much at the highest level because these men are millionaires and they're willing to put their bodies on the line. So the problem's not the highest level. The problem is the youth level. When when mom sees a man when a mother sees a young man collapse during an NFL game and sees his mother and his family members in the kind of frightened state they were she's immediately thinking am i letting my babies do this and more and more you're hearing people say no they're not going to so that's where you're going to have your first issue the youth leagues so the nfl has to somehow get the message out for one it's not important to get these kids and pads playing tackle football at such a young age that's not that's not necessary over and over again you see uh former nfl players who say they're not letting their kids play anything but flag football or seven on seven Uh, until they're older because it's not necessary for their development and also it's dangerous for concussions and and other things the sooner they get that message out the better the sooner they get the message out that they're doing everything that they can and they're actually showing that they're doing everything everything that they can the sooner we'll believe them and the sooner that they stop doing things like saying we're going to go back in five minutes you have a five minute break and then you're going to return to the game the sooner they stop that the quicker we will be to believe them that they actually care about more than just the bottom line in their product and about the individuals who are making all of this happen. Troy Vincent saying the five minute thing, he doesn't know where that came from. It's real suspicious because they said it multiple times. They announced it from the PA. I don't believe them. I don't believe Roger Goodell. I believe that they care about the bottom line more than they care about the individuals because it's such a big machine. And, like you said, you were talking about logistics. I think about the contract. I don't know what the deals are with advertisers. I don't know how that works when you cancel a game like that. I don't know how it works with uh, with Vegas you know, and gambling. I don't know how all that stuff works. But somebody's got to figure it out. There's got to be contingency plans. If not, this should be going forward. And they make enough money that they can pay enough people to get this figured out and ironed out so they can get their messaging and their actions in line.
2: Brandon Phoenix joining us. I think you make an excellent point here. Obviously, the health of Hamlin's number one as we're recording this. He's still in critical condition, and our prayers are with him, obviously. Long term, as far as the game goes, I think what's going to come out of last night is we finally found the limit. We've talked about those players. They're just ingrained to you push through, you play, hurt, whatever. We know where the line is now because we saw it for the first time, at least in my lifetime, on a football field where the players and the coaches said, nope, we're done. We're not playing. The coaches obviously were leading that up. The players were leading that out. They're like, no, we're not playing. That's the first time we've ever seen that. This is a collectively bargained league. This is a league with a very, very strong labor force in it. You better believe that's going to come up in collective bargaining. I think that's going to be probably long-term the most, other than this kid's health, and we hope he recovers fully. I think business-wise, Something really important happened last night because we finally saw the line. The public was with the players. The players saw it. Here and no further, we're not playing football. That's a big, big deal long term, I think.
4: You hit the nail on the head. That's a fact. That, that, we saw the line. The line was drawn. It was a hard stance that those players took. It was a courageous stance that those players and the coach The It was right took. call, too, by the way. And it was 100% the right call. There's no way you play. It's disrespectful to DeMar Hamlin. It's disrespectful to his family. And it's disrespectful to those players who witness trauma. I saw a tweet today that said, you know, you watch them stop the game, but healthcare workers do CPR on people all the time and go right back to work. What I'll say, though, is as traumatic as it is, because I work in the profession, I'm a respiratory therapist, and I, I've done CPR, I can't even count how many times. It's not the same as watching somebody you know and love being worked on. That's a different level of trauma. And to expect players to go out there and compete in a game after watching someone they know and love be worked on to have his life saved, that's just, there's no possible way any reasonable person, any compassionate person would have asked them to do that. Um, And so, like you said, it was the right call. It was the courageous call. And it's a call that will make a difference for years to come.
2: Yeah, I think we saw a player empowerment moment last night that's going to really, really matter. Brandon Phoenix joining us. One last thing on this, and I don't want to harp on it, but I just think it's really important to bring up. We talked about how big this league is, how important it is, the money. You just mentioned Vegas. The gambling is a huge part of the NFL now. There's just no debating it. That's what set it apart from everything else. Let's just be adults here. This has to be a moment where we start putting – especially kind of my beef with fantasy football over the years, and I was one of those early guys way back in the Yahoo board days, way, way back, right? I don't play fantasy football anymore because it was dehumanizing it for me. I'll just be real. And I'm not the only one doing that. I know lots of people do it. God bless. This has to be a moment where if we do nothing else, we have to humanize it. Yeah, yeah, some of them are millionaires, but a lot of them are lunch pail guys making, you know, they're going to make decent money for five or six years and that's it, and that's all they got. And then they got to do plan B, right? We have to find a way to humanize these players, even though they're superstars on our screen. I think that's an important thing that we all need to individually do, and something the league's got to work on, and something the players need to talk about. It's like, no, we're people working a job.
4: We're not cogs in a machine anymore. Yeah, I mean, that starts at home in my opinion. You know, it starts with the way I raise my children. That these men are not commodities, they're individuals, they're human beings. Um, it starts at home when I teach my son, my daughter those things and they go out to the world and they they Uh, perpetuate that Um, because I think about how I've evolved on the, uh, on the issue of concussions. I remember being a kid, they say somebody had a concussion, he was out next week. And I would think what's wrong with his arms and his legs, you know? And then it, it took years for me to understand. And it hasn't been until probably the last 10 years where I've understood how serious concussions are. And to look at these people as people in a way that I didn't growing up. And I didn't have the connection that I have now because of what I do um, to understand that. And it, you know, the more people like you and I talk about it in the way that we're talking about it, the better chance you'll have at it. I don't think fantasy football is going anywhere. I don't think you think that either. I don't I know gambling's not going anywhere. Um, but the conversations can change and they can change people.
2: Yeah, and it's going to be more important to have those conversations the bigger and bigger this beast gets to keep the humanity in it. Brandon Phoenix, Raspy Kids Voice podcast. He also does some speakings on YouTube, does a lot of different stuff. Really appreciate your time on this. Let folks know where they can follow you. We're definitely going to have you back, my friend. Been wanting to have you on anyway. Now we got the excuse. Now we can get you in the rotation, right, as Hugs would say. Um, let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again on Tell. where they can follow you, social media, what you got going on with the podcast, and where they can find you.
4: So, we, we are the Raspy Voice Kids, and you can find us at Raspy Voice Kids on everything on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, Raspy Voice Kids Podcast. It's Raspi Voice Kids at gmail.com if you want to get at us, send us questions, uh, ask us questions, whatever it may be. I personally am at I Also Hate Pit. Now, I that's on hiatus for now because of DeMar Hamlin. Of course, it's love and prayers to the Pit family. And to Damar Hamlin and his family. But I am at I also hate Pit. That's what people call me. Uh, I also hate Pitt at gmail.com if you want to get at me. And I also hate Pit on Instagram as well. So anywhere you find those, those that name and those handles, you can get a hold of me. You can get a hold of my brother who's at JNFiend. J-N-P-H-E-E-N. Fiend for Phoenix. Nothing else. And uh, we do a show typically every week. We talk about sports, but we also talk about pop culture. I say pop culture. And you guys can get on in on that whenever you want. Yeah,
2: it, it's amazing, too. And the reason, even though we do politics and culture, we have to hit sports sometimes, man, because especially something like the NFL, it crosses all those streams, the culture, the politics, economic debates, all of that. You can find it in something like the NFL and greater sports, especially with college, what's going on with that right now. Uh, it's a great podcast. They do it in a really unique and informative way. I listen to it, too. Check it out. Brandon Phoenix, thank you so much for the time, sir. Looking forward to doing it again.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Yes, sir. Anytime. Uh, welcome back to Hurt I'm very excited about this new face on the program, but somebody I'm very excited to talk to. He is the editor-in-chief of The Voice down in Atlanta. He's going to tell you all about that in just a minute. Donnell Suggs, how are you, sir? Good
6: morning, brother. I'm fine. How are you doing? Thanks for having me.
2: I love having you. This is one of the reasons I do social media. I get to new- meet new people, and now I've got an excuse to talk to them. So great mm-hmm. to talk to you. Let's start big picture for a second, because I had something happen back when we were covering the midterms. I was talking to one of our regular election folks that does the data and stuff. I think politically, culturally, demographically, economically, any of those major narrative stories that we're covering nationally. And of course those show up at election time. I find Atlanta to just be one of the real fascinating places to watch in the country. I'm an outsider. You're an insider. You're there. You right there. Does it feel that way to you folks that you really do have a microcosm of a lot of the wider issues going on and we got them all right there in
6: Atlanta right now? You're, you're, you're spot on. I think what's special about Atlanta is it really isn't Georgia. What Atlanta is, is the best of what America can be with with the ethnicities and different cultures, and also sort of kind of what happens when one, a city grows so fast that it has to just kind of be in the spotlight, even if it doesn't want to be. Um, I always tell people Atlanta and Georgia are two different things. Atlanta's the capital city, but it, it's like it's not, nothing else in Georgia. So politically, it's like nothing else in Georgia, and now it feels like it's like nothing else in America. And that's really special. That's really special to be a part of that right, as, at this time.
2: Yeah. And your own story fits directly into that. You're actually a Brooklyn guy. Uh, you've sure. been there for quite a while now. So, you know, no shame in saying you're an Atlanta, original native, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But you're one of them. Take your own story. Walk people through that. You came to Atlanta. You're part of that story. You came into that community. You're raising your family there now. What got you there and what makes you stay there and work?
6: 16 years in Atlanta, 17 years this June, met my wife here. My son was born here. My, my newspaper career really blossomed here. I moved here with the opportunity to work for a lot of smaller black newspapers because Atlanta still had those. Whereas in New York, there might be a few, but it, just, it was just harder to break into the industry as a young man without a ton of references outside of college newspapers. So Atlanta gave me my start. And in the meantime, in 2006, the Atlanta continues to change. So I'm kind of going along for that ride. And um, I just think that uh, Georgia as a whole, but Atlanta in particular, is that story for a lot of people. They moved here from Detroit and Chicago and Philly, et cetera, New York, of course, New Jersey. And we got to start maybe a different industry or we got a fresh start in the industry that we love in Atlanta, at least at that time, because it wasn't as crazy as it is now as far as um, eight million people. When I got here, it might have been like five. And it was still like, oh, people saying, where are you going? Atlanta. Where? OK, why? And now it's like, oh, where are you going? Atlanta. Oh, of course. And that's the change. So I think my story is very similar to a lot of people. That is just a place where you can get a fresh start or get the start you were looking for. And um, that's definitely what happened to me.
2: Yeah, Don L. Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. You just mentioned it. You got your start in newspapers and writing. We've been talking a lot and we covered on our show and we have reporters on always talk to them. We've, we really it is a big thing in our country, this dynamic, the nationalization of media, even though Atlanta is a major city, there's still local reporting that's really, really important. We just saw this with the Santos story in New York. Local people had it. National media ignored it. There's lots of examples of this, even in a major metro like Atlanta, one of our fastest growing, biggest metro, the diversity of it, the size of it, the way it's growing, the politics of it that we've seen in the last couple elections. Local media, even in a big city like that,
6: really, really matters still, doesn't it? It does. It does. You're not going to get the stories about um, local politicians. You're not going to get the stories about city council. You're not going to get the stories about the school districts from a national media standpoint, unless something major happens, i.e. Herschel Walker, Senator Reverend one. When they got down to the nitty gritty, then, of course, by the time they debate in Savannah, I'm elbow to elbow with CBS, CNN, ABC, and Fox News. I didn't see any of those people on the campaign trail in the early going when he first announced it, which I get it, I get it, it's not a natural story yet. And once it becomes one, now I'm like in a scrum with like Fox News, and it's, and it's great, for me it's great. I know local people don't like to have you know, the nationals kind of come in and bombard, but because we were on board from day one, I'm treated just like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal when there's a scramble as a matter of fact, maybe even better in some cases, in regards to Warnock's campaign, because they saw me when he was doing church parking lots on the west side of Atlanta with like 25 people outside. So when there's two thousand there's twenty five thousand people in College Park and President Obama's coming, they still see me. So local news is very important because we have the relationships that that form when it isn't the coolest story in America. So when it becomes the coolest story in America, we're still there
2: yeah i'm glad you brought that up because this is a part this is why the just banging on the media and i've tried to quit saying media i try to distinguish news media broadcast media those are very different things so you just mentioned these are still people and these are still relationships even though it's a big business so yeah you need to build that relationship with a cbs news a fox news and msnbc whoever the big national carriers is they're like oh well we know we can go to this guy and get good information we can go to this outlet or we can go to this specific reporter. People can do that with their social media, though, too, even if they're other parts of the country start following specific reporters, specific outlets. That's actually how you start making media better. Instead, of just bashing the nameless, faceless, the media. Right. Please.
6: I think it's great that we separate media, which is a form of communication from journalists, which is a professional person that knows how to deliver a message. Just like I can sing, but it's not. Well, I don't want to call myself a single just because I sang a song in the shower this morning. You shouldn't call yourself a journalist. If you're just out there writing something down on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, so that's okay. But that's a form of media. Just like my singing is a form of noise. (laughs) That's a form of media and that's okay. So I think the locals are, our jobs are so much more important now because there's so many people who can get a message out. It might not necessarily be a good one or even true. So you need to have that that local media there, that source that you can trust and say, wait a minute, I'm just going to check. Atlantavoice.com. I'm gonna check Donnell's Twitter feed because he's he's usually involved in that stuff. And that's happened a bunch of times, especially during um the campaign.
2: Yeah, Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Let's talk about the voice for a second because mm. there's a long history of um specific newspapers in America. And of course, newspapers are now more digital-minded. So it turns out black newspapers, other ethnic groups had their own newspapers. This is a long tradition that kind of sort of dropped off in the last few years. But there's folks like you. I know in my home state, uh, even as non-racially diverse as West Virginia can be, we have black by God, things like this. There seems to be a movement back towards this using the new technology with the old ideas. Why is it so important for these people groups, whether it's a black group or whatever, to have their own voice in their own media? Because like we talked with local media, there's some stories that you can just cover that way that nobody else can
6: And I think you just said it best. Not that a white reporter from the New York Times couldn't come to Atlanta and tell a story about a lady with a a flower shop in College Park, Georgia. Not saying that he or she couldn't do that, but would they do that? I think local media in West Virginia, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Tribune, for example, one of my favorite black newspapers, Amsterdam News, one of my favorite black newspapers in uh, in New York, Atlanta Voice, et cetera. I think we have a beat on some of that more ground level stuff that you still need. And in the case of websites like uh, Word in Black, um, there, there are websites that are saying, hey, listen, let's get these black newspapers together. Let's get online, let's make, it a, let's make a digital front and get the word out still, because I think it's still important that we tell our own stories still. We were doing that in the, t- in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, because we couldn't get into main- mainstream media. And then once we began to do that, just like in college and sports as well, well, then maybe I don't need to write for the Atlanta Voice. I can write for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And there are some great journalists there. I don't care what color they are. But in the same token, I'm at a Clayton County school talking to someone at a warming station in Jonesboro that no one else would care about because they don't. it's not on their beat. Whereas with me, it's more local, so I better get down there. And you end up, getting te- you end up being able to tell really good stories. So I feel like the push towards black journalism I think it's 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 a real thing and even though we are a lot of I just came from a major newspaper the Atlanta Business Chronicle is a major news it's the second largest paper in the state of Georgia and it's the I feel my money I feel like it's the most important because we talk about development and business I was there when the opportunity came to run the black newspaper in town I jumped at it because I felt like it was important to be able to continue to tell our stories
2: L. Suggs, Editor-in-Chief of the Atlanta Boys. Let's take an example that you already mentioned. Um, Senator Warnock, now Senator. I'm an outsider. I'm a national guy. So I'm basically going off what I read and talking to people. And when I talk to people about the last runoff, and it ran into this runoff with Senator Mm. Warnock, that first runoff race, there was the national narrative, and then the Trump jumped in, and then there was the complete disaster piece of the GOP and how they handled that and telling their own voters not to vote and all that. That was the national narrative. But when I talked to people locally and I started talking to sources like what you folks do, they're like, no, no, no. There's a story with the Raphael Warnock, the church stuff, some of the really ugly stuff, that, how personal that race got. And it carried over because it was only two years until the next one. That was the local story that the national kind of missed. And that is one of those great examples of like. Politically, everybody's like, well, how did how did you see this coming? Well, because if you talk to the local people, the story was completely different than the national narrative that came in later. And now you got to now on his own
6: terms, Senator Warnock. Again, we were covering Warnock when the idea was just floated about him two years ago, potentially running for Senate. So this was not new stuff for us. We were covering Ebenezer Baptist Church whenever they had MLK um, different celebrations, et cetera. So again, he was familiar to us. So when we jumped into this thing, it wasn't like we were talking about someone that we had to kind of discover. We knew him already and it just read differently. It it doesn't have to read better. It just read differently because I was already covering his church or I was already talking to parishioners at his church. So it it wasn't like we parachuted in and tried to figure out this guy. We knew this guy. And I think that's the strength of being the only black newspaper, the only black print and online newspaper in Atlanta We still have that cachet with a lot of these people, especially particularly a reverend at the most prominent church in the city. I think in the city period, let alone black church. So that comes with being local and already being on the ground.
2: And that's a culture thing, you know, black church, man, even if you come from a church background, that's unique in and of itself. It really needs to explain to folks that don't understand it because it was really one of those things with, and this is the best way I can think to explain it. You can explain it better than me. It's like, look, this is one of those things that's in sort of like, we talk amongst ourselves about certain things, but you don't get a, you don't get to criticize it from the outside. It was that kind of a dynamic, but a national audience may not be familiar with, especially Southern church culture in that community.
6: The black church was the place where we could go kind of like, like kind of like how guys talk at the barbershop. Now let's take it back to when we couldn't drink out of that water fountain or sit at that, uh, that uh, lunch counter. But the black church was a place where you can go, quote unquote, let your hair down and have our conversations about how things are going to go. And in some cases, during the civil rights movement, have a conversations about what we're going to do. So the black church has a certain cachet and and prominence. Still to this day, that that's a place where we can be ourselves. And you don't have to necessarily mix words or or keep some things under wraps. You know, these days now you, you get canceled for everything. Well, I've been to, I've been to uh, black churches where Folks is talking about how we're raising our kids, why we don't have jobs, how we're how you're dealing with your wife. And it's like this is your father, your mother, in a sense, your pastor telling you this is how you're supposed to do it. You ain't doing it right. And that's why black church is still extremely important.
2: Yeah. Donnell Suggs joining us, editor in chief of the Atlanta Voice. We're going to link to it, by the way, so you can find his publication and the great work. He's got some really good young reporters. I was reading through this stuff. Mm -hmm. The the key to the First Amendment, we talk about freedom of speech is. Do you tolerate somebody that's against your speech? Do you defend their right to say something you disagree with? It's kind of the same thing with the press. We need to have an adversarial press because there's a lot of accountability that needs to go away. And everybody covers things a little differently. You know, it's almost like the old Jordan thing, you know, (laughs) Republicans buy shoes, too. Right. Uh, If you're on the right, you should be protective of progressive press. Progressive press should be protective of conservative press. This, This thing all goes together. How do we get past that so that we're talking about journalism? Because it really does seem like it's gotten more and more partisan and there's nothing wrong with that. But overarching that is I think there's been some taking advantage of the freedom of the press under the guise of that. And we're missing the bigger picture like, no, no, no. We need all of this media working, even if they're across purposes sometimes, because when it comes to things like government or corruption or big corporations or demographic changes or whatever, The press is still supposed to be that outlet between the people and those halls of power. How do we tell that story a little bit better in a bigger picture way? So like, hey, even if I disagree with this publication, it's important that they're there.
6: I'm going to I'm going to use this moment to to take a shot at television and radio. I think they're more bipartisan than we are in the printed press because we can't be unless you are literally like you know, telling you, uh, advertising yourself as a right wing this or right wing that for the most part, we're reporters and we're going to ask questions of people and we're going to report it. I think television and particularly television and then radio are like, wait a minute, we need these audiences. So we better go down this lane. Fox news has phenomenal journalists there, but they have a job and they have bosses that make them say some of the things they say. Tucker Carlson is a really good journalist. I don't think people, a lot of people know he was an excellent reporter, but no one cares anymore because on TV, he's saying these things that make you say, oh, either I love this guy or I hate this guy. And he's gotta do what he has to do to feed his family. I get that. I wish he wouldn't and be a little more careful. With that said, I think with, as me as a newspaper reporter and someone that writes for a printed paper and online, I have to just be gray. Here's what happened. I'm at the Walker, I'm at, I was at Walker, um, rallies i was at Warnock rallies for example it wasn't like i was telling some more than the others and i think that's that's the the difference between those two mediums those three mediums and i think we should get back to having all three mediums radio tv and print just be journalist and not necessarily have any sides when did that happen we didn't used to have that Well,
2: you know this is grown folk talk that we do here we don't yell we talk through things You're in a business, you run the paper, you're an editor-in-chief. You understand that that digital side is now the lifeblood of print media. I mean, you just got to be or you're dead because we've seen it all across the country. Mm. How do you transfer that to the new technology without changing the principles of it? Because that's what the media, the print media, um, like, again, let's break this down. Broadcast media, that's a whole different business model than journalism, than investigative journalism, than print media. How does print media push ahead because you're doing it this is your job now you try to take print media and investigative reporting and put it in a digital context how do you see it as somebody that's doing it and
6: trying to evolve with it as it's changing under your feet and being you mentioned earlier i have a really good young journalist when you say young they're like 24 and 21 in particular they're kids and their mindset is get in front of a camera or get on social media or or try to write a hot take and i'm training them to say listen you can have a hot story and have it still be journalism. Uh, let's utilize social media. Let's get on Twitter and let's utilize that to say, hey, we're here at this place. There's still a way for me to do it. The website is the lifeblood. It's just bottom line. The ads online cost, make us more money than ads in print. People still want that. But I have to be clear. All the stories have to be for online. So there's a balance. But I think there's a way for us to do that and still be on social media as well because that's a way to get to. so I meet so many more people on Twitter than I do in real life you know yourself included i have all these friends that wish me happy birthday and happy anniversary and you're like man i'm never gonna see this guy i'm never gonna see this girl but we're all friends because of social media and that's a way we can do our journalism as well we just gotta be really careful with making sure it's journalism and not just putting something online because some certain company wants to pay this much money for an ad we get that all the time we're the black newspaper in town a lot of companies want to reach black audiences or at least pretend that they are and they'll come to us and say hey Here's this big, I'm not going to name a company. Here's this big ad or whatever. Could you put that by a story about this? And sometimes I have to push back with my publishers and say, wait, wait, wait. That's fine. Put the ad there, but we're going to write the story like we would have wrote the story without the ad. So there's a balance, but it's been fun because again, now I have a, ch- a chance to shake the news a little bit instead of just being a reporter. So it's been a lot of fun, it's a lot of work though.
2: Yeah, Don L. Struggs, uh, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Let, let's throw some good news in that mix, though, because some of this has been a little heavy. One thing I find interesting with the younger journalists coming up, younger commentators that I get to work with and do some mentoring with them, one of the things I really like to do is this stuff is their natural ecosystem, though. So there's actually going, I think there's going to be some innovation in this because you don't have to train them to do TikTok. You don't have to train them to multi-platform. They just naturally do it. They already know, it. they brand themselves. You don't have to teach them, brand, you know, you know, our age group, we talked about networking back in the day, right? You don't have to tell them that. They do it naturally. It's their natural language. Some of this, I think, is just going to kind of fix itself because I think this upcoming generation that's already technologically savvy if you can do what you just said about mentoring them, they already got the rest of it. I think we're actually on the brink of seeing some real innovation in how things like media and journalism are done, just because this group of people are going to do it in a way that's never been done before.
6: The business has changed. The business has changed. Now you have publications that you don't need a print press. You don't need an office. There are some that don't even have an office. It's just like we all get on Google Meet and we'll have our staff meeting, and then boom, guys or girls are out covering stories, national stories. Local stories. so the business will change. And thankfully, these these young people, I call them kids. Sometimes I'm forty, I'm forty five. I call them a kid. If you're twenty one, you, I could be your dad. And it's like that's amazing because I was always the kid in the newsroom. I was always up until the, the, my last job. I was one of the youngest reporters there. And now it's like forty five is the old guy, which is great because I still have those things where I say, wait a minute, go back and ask that one more question. Or I know they're zooming the press conference, but it's right downtown. Go ahead and go to that you still need guys like us to say go to the press conference i know it's on zoom or i know they're gonna have it on whatever but go down there and check it out so these kids are coming with a ton of talent and a ton of techno technological skill but there's still room for ask another question call them back go visit that said business or that said politician so it's the business is changing for sure but some of our old tenants they still matter
2: yeah Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Okay, we talked about parachuting. For folks that want to work on that, now that the elections are done, people leave Georgia alone for at least, you know, 12 months or so until we do the next batch of elections. It's going to be a very important state in 2024. Let's not kid ourselves. But, locally what's a couple of the big picture stories over the next year or two? Are you looking at Atlanta that the national audience or international audience should not you know, they're not going to follow it all the time, but maybe just bookmark it. Like I need to check on this. Is it the demographic changes? Is it the economics? Is it the Buckhead stuff? What's the stuff that you're watching and kind of keeping an eye on between now and the election? When, the, so when folks parachute back in, you can be like, Oh, we've been here. Here's your cue card on what you need to talk
6: about. Well, everyone don't waste your time on the bucket stuff. That was, um, bs when we begin from the from the gate <laughs> we're not going to annex off the most expensive properties in the in the city because someone wants a, a fence around it so that's out don't worry about that um we still should keep an eye on senator warnock as a matter of fact he just got sworn in what's that today he's gonna get sworn in today and um senator ossoff will be going up 2024 so keep an eye on that uh he'll be back right back to have to um, get back on the campaign um i think we should keep an eye on Georgia as. Um, a battleground state. It's going to be huge, like you said, in 2024. Georgia Georgia might be, again, once again, be the key state for whomever is running against Joe Biden. I'm assuming Joe Biden's going to run again. Um, running against Joe Biden for the presidency. And um, if that's the case, we're right back to where we were, being you know the key battleground state and being just um, having all eyes on us. So we should just keep an eye on that. Because 2024 will be here in no time. I feel like it's right around the corner already. And we just started
2: 2023. It sure is. Donnell. Suggs. okay. We talked a lot about accountability, the importance of journalism, and accountability. However, friends have to hold friends accountable. I've got to ask you. It's right in your bio. So I got to bring it up. I'm going to quote you here. You're a devout Met fans and you believe Fellini's Pizza on Ponce is the best pizzeria in Atlanta. Donnell, Suggs, never, defend your choices.
6: I'm, <laughs> I'm never going to change that. Fellini's Pizza tastes like New York pizza and i can i cannot be more complimentary than that in regards to pizza i'm a brooklyn native i lived there until i went to college obviously in pennsylvania and then got back home for a couple years and moved to atlanta Fellini's pizza on ponds there's three Fellini's, by the way Fellini's pizza on ponds would be exactly if you flew in today and said let's get lunch i would take you to felinis without even telling you that's what i would do to every all my friends that come into town i got to get them a slice of pizza and it's the best so i'm not that and waffle house is the best restaurant in America. Those two things I'll never change.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on Waffle House. I just did a trip to Chicago, so I've been getting Pizza War compliments for the last couple of weeks. So. That's
6: serious about that pizza.
2: We'll put Fellini's on the list. Uh, Donnell Suggs, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. Let them know about the Atlanta Voice and where they can keep track of you until we see you and your friends again on Hurt Tell.
6: Please, please follow the Atlanta Voice on at, on Twitter at the Atlanta Voice. Also on, at the website, TheAtlantaVoice.com, and me at Suggs, S U G G S writer, W R I T E R on Twitter. Um, we're everywhere, man, in Atlanta. If it's local, if it's national within Atlanta Bent or Georgia Bent, we'll be there. So please follow us. Thank you.
2: Yep. Lots of good food content on his. You know how much we love our food For because sure. they, those of us that's got to do this culture and politics things online. That's our same place. That's why we do all that food stuff. Um, so we'll keep doing that. Sir, I greatly appreciate your time. Looking forward to having you back soon. Donnell Suggs, thank you so much, sir.
6: Thank you, brother. I appreciate you.
2: Yes, sir. Ah, welcome back to HerTel. Okay, she's become one of our favorites for a lot of reasons. One is she's unique. The other reason is she's unique. We really like her. Amanda Griffiths is back on the program. Uh, She's got a lot of letters after her names, but mostly she's just real, real smart. How are you, Amanda? Great to talk to you again.
1: I'm doing wonderfully. How about yourself, Andrew?
2: Fantastic. It was good meeting you in person. That was fun. Um, And a lot of our other friends. Let's talk a little elections, though. Uh, you wrote in real clear politics. Here's my deal. Let's just go big picture before we get into the minutiae here a little bit and what you wrote. Uh, I'm an actions, not words guy. We've had a couple of elections with contention here. Now, I don't believe anybody really cares about fixing any of the inherent problems in the election system because we would have fixed them between the last couple of elections and we just keep doing it over and over again. Am I wrong?
1: I am not just the past couple of elections. I mean, we'd have fixed them a long time ago. There are real issues that have to do with election integrity and that have to do with voter access, and in particular, candidate access, which redounds to voters. If you have a candidate that's representative of a voter base that can't access a ballot, for instance, then you've got voters who are being shut out of voicing their representative preference. So, yeah. Of course, we would have fixed this a long time ago if it mattered to fix it. But really, it's just a talking point. Uh, And it's one of those things that back and forth uh, between our generally uh, bipartisan system or duopolistic system, you have both sides that will continue to, to bray about how the other side is stealing elections, the other side is playing dirty, and we all hear this talk about saving democracy. What's interesting is no one actually stops and bothers to say what they mean by democracy. So that's where it gets a little bit murky. And I think that's where we're allowed to not fix the real problems because we haven't defined what the problem is affecting.
2: Yeah. And if we fix the problem, then we can't complain that the problem exists to our mailing list and our fundraising base, which is what's happening with a lot of this right now. Let's just be adults here. Um, Election denialism or whatever you want to call it. There's good business there. There's good fundraising there. And there's a reason these people that can get close and not win. They file court injunctions at certain times. They file court injunctions at certain times. They have certifications at certain times. They know how to do it without legally getting in trouble this is a business now inside the political realm. Let's just call it what it is.
1: For sure. I mean, consultants, pundits, politicians, they'll make a lot of money talking about stolen elections. And I want to point out that every cycle, it's whatever party is sort of the most scared of losing power. So this particular cycle, the Democrats are very scared of of losing their grip. Of losing their majority, and you actually saw Hillary Clinton put out this fundraising video talking about how in 2024 there was going to have they were planning a coup uh, that that the Republican this MAGA fascistic base was planning this coup, and uh, let's see uh, she's actually got an initiative now called Crush the Coup, which sounds suspiciously like Stop the Steal, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, see, sloganeering always does it when you do that, especially when you project out, and we don't even know who the candidates are going to be, although we can kind of guess. Uh, Amanda Griffiths joining us. You touch on a couple of things here. You touch on one thing that I actually struggle. Look, look, let's just do some grown folk talk here. I struggle with this particular part that you touched on on your base. What do we do with long-shot candidates from either third parties or independents that make it on the ballot. They do everything they're supposed to do. And we'll talk about ballot access in a minute. You also touched on that. I struggle with this because at one point I'm like, yeah, if they cover their bases, they do everything right. They get on the ballot. But I also understand the argument of like, look, we got two people that can win and, and a couple percentage point. Look, I've got a friend of mine in West Virginia, who won won our house of delegates seats by 56 votes. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, these things really matter when you get a tight race and you've got two people that are clearly ahead and you can have somebody playing the spoiler role. You argue, you talk about both sides of it, that it's a part of democracy, but there is a spoiler role involved. What do we do with that? Because I struggle with that one. I'm not sure what exactly to do with that sometimes because it kind of crosses a couple different streams.
1: Well, nobody likes a spoiler, especially when you've got a candidate for whom you're rooting. Right. And do and you think that the spoiler is just there to steal votes? Well, that's difficult. Right that the spoiler is just there to sabotage your guy. This recently happened very publicly uh, in Georgia, with the Georgia runoff uh, between Walker and Warnock, there was a libertarian named Chase Oliver, who uh, got about 2% of the Georgia vote. And then Georgia, of course, went to a runoff. Now, was it George's or rather, was it Chase Oliver's fault? that we had this runoff and that we had this runoff election. Absolutely not. No one would would have heard of Chase Oliver. No one would have voted for Chase Oliver if Chase Oliver hadn't been offering some sort of alternative that neither Walker nor Warnock were able to provide. So what needs to happen when you see what these so-called spoiler candidates is both parties that are part of the more major party system, Republicans, Democrats, need to take a look and ask, what is so appealing about this about this figure? What's so appealing about this, um, this figure that is getting people to deviate from either my team or the other guy's team, or come out for the first time and take away... So it's, you know, so that, that's the viewpoint, take away some of my votes that I'm trying to court. And when Republicans and Democrats do this right as they have, what you see happening is they do get a lot of that other more so-called independent base, third party base coming over. When Republicans or Democrats take on some part of that other parties' platform. Uh, Republicans have done that or tried to do that with immigration. Uh, Democrats have been very successful doing this with um, with marijuana legalization. Uh, and I'm speaking in terms of libertarians here, but obviously we can talk about Green Party. We can even talk about Democratic Socialist. I have no idea whether I would have voted for this third-party candidate. But what I can tell you is that And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a Jill Stein, whether we're talking about a Bernie Sanders, whether we're talking about a Gary Johnson. If enough people had been satisfied with either major party candidate, you wouldn't have a problem. So I don't understand how libertarians and all these third party candidates are huge jokes until they take a little percentage of the vote to which you think you were entitled and all of a sudden they are election saboteurs and thieves of democracy, which last I checked required a little something of pluralism.
2: Amanda Griffith is joining us. Okay, so the counter argument is going to be, well, they've got built-in disadvantages, and there's truth to that. You touched on it. This Tennessee example that you used, we've talked about this one on the show. This is one of the more egregious ones, mm. where a uh, major party, Republican Democrats, they need 25 signatures for a ballot, but any kind of an independent or third party needs 56,000. That's a little more egregious than most places have, but it is true. There is access thing. Now, I don't think we need 80 people on the ballot every time we have an election. What's a reasonable standard here? Does it, you know, there's not going to be a rise of a major third party anytime soon. Sorry, libertarian fans. You, you guys got to have an adult convention before you get that status. But what's a reasonable gatekeeping here that it doesn't waste the public's time and the public's money, but it also makes elections more accessible. Find me some middle ground here somewhere, something common sense.
1: Sure, and we should have standards, right? I don't. I don't think there should be a free for all. I shouldn't just be able to climb on a ballot and 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 run for office. Uh, so there's a group for in Tennessee called For All Tennessee, and their website is and no, I don't work for them. They're not paying me. For the 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 uh, you know the F O R A L L T N dot org. And they have a bunch of fantastic ballot proposals where they basically say, we just want to bring this a little bit more into line. You know, we want to be able to have, let's say, you know, a a smaller percentage of people perhaps supporting a candidate, perhaps pulling for a candidate, smaller percentage of signatures on the ballot or sorry that um on canvassing that is more commensurate with what is required to get a republican or a democrat on the ballot that's all normal we can look at perhaps fundraising numbers we can have a lot of redundancy built in so several different standards from which you can pick and choose one particularly strange and this is a, a this is not a a public forum this is more private uh, but with the debate system, this is particularly strange the way this is run. Uh, now, this is when we talk about the bipartisan debates, these, these, you know, political debates, the people who coordinate these, essentially they will say, well, you have to score a certain percentage of, of favorability, up have to have a certain favorability rating in national polls. Uh, but what they qualify as a national poll is any one of the five major network news polls. So you're already, you're already limiting the number of people who can even respond to this poll. So you're already narrowing the base from which you can draw when you're trying to gauge how popular is a given candidate. These are the types of things that are very, very old rules that shouldn't really apply anymore. And yeah, when we're, when we're talking about um, ballot access, uh, particularly with uh, with Tennessee. So yes, right now you need uh, 25 signatures to run if you're a Republican, 25 to run if you're a Democrat, 25 to run Weirdly, if you're a registered independent, but 56,082 if you're a third party, I don't really understand the difference between third party and independent, but the problem with just declaring oneself an independent, if you're part of a legitimate third party, is that then you are abdicating a little bit of your ability to make voters immediately aware what you stand for. Is there an L next to your name? Is there a G next to your name? Is there a DSA next to your name? That I isn't going to say much. And so we need to re we need, to, we need to rework these standards that have to do you know to, so that they're a little bit more in line with prior voting history, with signatures, all of that.
2: Amanda Amanda Griffiths joining us. You talk about things like signatures. You talk about things like canvassing. These are nuts and bolts of politics that we don't talk about because they don't trend. We don't. I mean, we've gotten to where now, you know, social media people like their little election maps and things like that. And that's great because that raises awareness. I think it does have an educational value to it. But the nuts and bolts of elections don't get talked about enough. And this is one of those things where the letters of the law really matter and we don't focus on it like the thing in Tennessee. I bet you a lot of people in Tennessee don't even know that exists. Um, I bet most voters probably don't know what the ballot access requirements in their municipalities are for local, state and federal elections. And that all three of those can be very different in the exact same voting area. Uh, These things are really complicated. How do we raise the education level towards the election nuts and bolts, things like that, like how to get on a ballot, how people qualify so they don't just get stuck up with, oh, this person should run for office and you wind up with a candidate that's unqualified or otherwise unworthy. This seems like an important piece of education for an informed electorate to have. How do we get there?
1: Uh, You know, I I feel I feel like Ben Sass and we just go back to civics class. We need schoolhouse rock. Uh, we need Schoolhouse Rock songs. But who's going to teach it? Not,
2: not to cut you off, but my parent, my, look, my dad was a teacher, and he always said the problem with student teachers is they're going to become teachers because he taught a lot of the student teachers. And like the problem with these students is sometimes they're going to be teachers. Like, you know, there's a trickle down effect to something being bad. Is like the people now don't know how to do it. How are they going to teach somebody else something they don't know?
1: And I just, I not just not to be a cynic, final, but that's, you know, I just finished, I just submitted final grades too, so I feel personally attacked right now as a, as a student teacher. But yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely. Didn't say I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right that uh, that it is difficult, and I mean you can't just kick a civics class. But uh, you know, part of it is that there are policy changes, and the policy changes can raise awareness a little bit. So again, we'll go back to for all Tennessee because you said correctly, Andrew. Tennessee is one of the most egregious examples of, 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 you know, uh, ballot access disproportionality uh, in, in the country. So what for all Tennessee proposes is that, First of all, there is, they proposed reducing the retention requirement to keep ballot access from 5% of votes in the statewide race to 1% of votes for for third party or minor party candidates. Uh, Anything that you do that is going to allow for greater access to ballots for voters to feel more represented by a greater swath of people and to voice the fact that they have this this representative alternative, anything you do there is automatically going to make people care more about it. And yes, we do need fewer signatures. 0.5% of the votes in the last governor's race, say, if we've got gubernatorial candidates. Right now, it's 2.5%. So that can be curtailed, that can be cut down. And this would also lower the cost to taxpayers. So again, I'm reading directly now from the For All Tennessee website. Tennessee law states that any party who achieves over 5% must participate in a taxpayer-funded primary. And this bill actually increases that threshold to 25%, which reduces the cost, makes it more difficult for all candidates uh, to, uh, to, to, you, to get in that taxpayer-funded primary. So once again, just making it a more level playing field, once again, this differential between the label independent and label third party I think we need to do away with entirely because when you look now at polling numbers, we actually have a plurality of people, more people than Republicans or Democrats are now saying, more voters are now saying, I don't align with either party. Now, maybe they're saying I'm a libertarian. Maybe they're saying I'm Green Party. Maybe they're saying I am independent. Maybe they're saying I'm a socialist. We don't know. But people are saying I am X, and they're getting lumped into this category called independent. I'll tell you what, Justin Amash is not the same type of independent as Bernie Sanders is not the same type of independent as Jill Stein. So when we talk about how a plurality of Americans now are actually independent voters, I like to think all Americans are independent voters. We need to be defining what that means, not just third party, not just not this thing that I know or think that I understand, but rather, okay, what do they stand for? And then what do they believe in? And then major parties can look at that and say, well, how do we integrate some of these popular initiatives into our platforms? That's what a successful postmortem does.
2: Yeah. Amanda Griffiths. Post-mortem, pre-mortem. If you're going to defend democracy, you need to understand at least how it works. Yes. And we seem to be failing that standard right now. Uh, Amanda, always enjoy talking to you. Let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to this piece so everybody can find it. Let folks know how they can follow and keep up with all the very many things you're doing because you're all over the place nowadays.
1: I, I tra- Well, and, and physically, dude, geographically, yeah, my gosh, traveling, traveling from moving. Uh, people can find me on the twitter.com uh, at Ajax, the Griff, And I have just found out that I have progressed from being a Young Voices contributor to a Young Voices writer. So I will be writing for the wonderful uh, organization Youngvoices. Or I think it's is it .org or .com? No, they keep We're changing. We're an it. org. We're an on org. org. All right, all right. We're so a nonprofit. Young, <laughs> We're an org. So you can check out my page, youngvoices.org. You can see all the uh, all the media hits and all the articles that I've been working on. I always love to talk. Uh, so you go follow me on Twitter, and I'm I'm working on getting the Instagram down, uh, but that's a work in progress. So we'll see. Yeah.
2: Young have at that Instagram. I'm going to stick with Twitter to the bitter end. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, our very good friend, young voices, contributor, doing exciting stuff, including a cross country move somewhere in here in her many, many travels. So Madison, Uh, my friends, uh, in the winter time. Good luck.
1: I Uh, I lived in Chicago. It's all right. I'm battle hardened. I've got, I I'm, some somewhere in here. I've got uh, I've got reserves.
2: I did Chicago and DC in back to back weeks and it was colder in DC, so I must have got lucky. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, we so appreciate you. Also gonna have you on the long form podcast back. We're gonna talk some more communism and classicalism and some other great stuff. Look You're the best, my friend. Thanks for coming back.
1: You're wonderful, Andrew, and happy holiday season to you and your listeners.
2: You too. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.
5: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's returning. He's out in Utah. He does comms and stuff, talks a lot about conservation and environmental things. Micah Safestan, how are you, sir? Great to have you back on the program. Doing well, Andrew. Good to be back. Great to have you back. Okay, let's, let I I like to start with just base stuff when we talk, and I don't mean base like the kids use it, because I still don't understand what is and isn't base these days. I just mean like base isn't foundational. Okay, you've been writing about the cultivated meat, not plant-based meat.
7: Right. I,
2: I'm not against the idea. I like the idea. I understand the concept. I think the concept even has a noble goal for what it's worth that, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. At the same time, I think we're getting a little carried away with this. We have thousands and thousands of years of human data on how to do good husband animal husbandry. We have good data on what is and isn't sustainable farming and sustainable agriculture and sustainable raising of food products via animals. We know what works and doesn't work. Why are we banging our head against the wall when it comes to things like plant-based meat and acting like it has to be either or here?
7: Well, what's definitely the case is that uh, traditional, traditional animal husbandry, traditional agricultural practices, uh, they do they do have quite a toll and they they are um, very inefficient compared to the other foods that we eat, you know, any other, uh, you know, our our fruits and vegetables are far more efficient when it comes to calories in and calories out. Um, And so that, that is certainly like a a something I think we do need to take seriously that the fact that uh, 25 calories for one calorie of, of beef, that's pretty high. And so, uh, and then when you look at the, the methane emissions and the, the costs it has on, on just the, the, the land that animals are grown upon. Um, and then, you know, something I write a lot about is water, water use. And, and we have to, to, to feed these animals. We, well, these animals that we eat, we have to feed them something. So we have to grow, uh, plants that, that they eat that we don't even, we don't consume at all. And so it's it is very inefficient. So they they're doing there's uh, it, there's it's ripe for innovation, and so um, I, I applaud anyone who's who's looking to uh, to to innovate in this this area. But a lot of people are doing it the wrong way, looking at the wrong the wrong things. Um, these plant based meats.
2: Micah Safeson joining us. Let's just get right to the brass tacks of it. This is a business thing. They are doing this not only for altruistic reasons, but this is a growing business sector. People want to either because of dietary reasons, religious reasons. Some people want to be, you know, vegetarian or vegan for whatever reason. That's fine. They should have options. Um, But this is a business model. Right now, this is a very expensive business model. And that's part of the discussion that we're having when we get into how this is getting into the market, the market penetration source like that. You just can't get around the cost of this at the moment, can
7: you? No, that's right. You uh, there's there's a lot of money in it. Um, you know, in 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 agriculture, particularly uh, meat production, um, it's something like four companies, four meat packing companies, control a, a majority of of the industry. And um, that, like I said, it's ripe for innovation and ripe for ripe for disruption.
2: You make an interesting. You wrote about this in Real Clear Energy. We're going to link to the piece. You made an interesting comparison here between the plant-based meats, the impossible meats, these things, whatever you want
7: to call them, and televisions? Right. So uh, it, it is it is something of a, a, a leap there. So what really what I'm actually comparing is cultivated meats, not plant-based meats. So plant-based meats are, are I call them high-tech veggie burgers. Uh, they're not veggie burgers that you would usually think of. Um, veggie burgers traditionally made with like, you, you take a bite and there's like a, a bean in there. Um, plant-based meats are like the, these impossible meats and they're not good. I've, I've had them and they're, they're not good. And some people disagree with me, but I, most people do not. Uh, and, but what, what I was comparing to televisions was cultivated meat, which is different than both veggie burgers and plant-based meats. Cultivated meat is meat that is, Grown in a lab, it it is, it is uh, in terms of its chemical makeup, indistinguishable from traditional meat. Um, it's made with proteins, lipids, the, the same things that that make up, you know, the, the beef that we eat: beef, chicken, pork. Um, and it, it what what how they do it is they take a small biopsy of a living animal, so we'll say a, a cow. And they then take that and I, I've read that it's, it's often the size of a sesame seed and they literally put that in enzymes and they form meat out of it and it, it grows in a lab. And it's very expensive, um, something like between $2,400 a pound. I mean, that's just absurd. Um, there's no way you can, you can bring that to market. Uh, but the point i make about the televisions is that uh, it in the year 2000 a television a 50-inch flat screen tv cost $20,000 today a 50-inch flat screen tv costs about $250 and that that price reduction came over time as as you know uh, early adopters eccentric wealthy people um investors they, they invest in this product and allow it to scale. And my point was that while cultivated meat is is prohibitively expensive, there is time for, for it to scale. And it needs just needs to be given the opportunity to scale. And my claim is that cultivated meat is a better answer than impossible because of that. Um, impossible meat is far less expensive, but it's it's unpalatable. Cultivated meat has the potential of being palatable and that the, has the potential of being affordable.
2: Uh, Micah Station joining us. What about, you just mentioned it, the impossible stuff has a bad reputation with some folks earned, not earned. I understand some people like it, but you know, that's okay. Some people don't understand the greatness of ketchup and cheese on a hot dog too. You know, there's wrong people walking the earth. That's what I like. Sorry. But like, like I just did, I mixed the two up. Is there going to be a barrier here because the one became before the other and it's having some issues in the market, at least getting stereotyped, if nothing else. I think that's a fair way to put it. If it's getting stereotyped a certain way, now the cultivated is coming. You just had to explain it to me for four or five minutes. That's going to be a barrier to the marketplace besides just the
7: price, right? I think, I think that's exactly right. Uh, people will, as cultivated meat does uh, become more available, as it scales up, um, there will be an association of cultivated meat with impossible meat or in a plant-based meat, really. And and I think that... that hope is that as uh, more people are able to actually try it, that that challenge will be overcome. And I, I think it can. I hope it can. Um, I'll admit, I've never tried cultivated meat. Uh, I, I can't afford a $600 hamburger. Um, th- but I'm confident that the market is able to produce something that is equivalent and possibly even better than than a traditional hamburger using cultivated meat, um, and, and that to me makes more sense to, uh, to to as a way to solve some of the challenges and and the the emissions that agriculture takes on on the planet, um, rather than than these plant based alternatives, which are just not good, and uh, the. the Kind of, it kind of comes back to this point that I often find myself coming back to that we we don't have to sacrifice every good thing in our life to uh, to to solve some of the environmental problems that we have around us. And often the the, the solutions actually don't involve those sacrifices at all. and that's that this is an example
1: of that,
2: yeah, Micah Safeson joining us. Okay, We talked about the cost. We talked about the science of it. There's a big cultural component here. Let's, let's just be honest about this thing. Like I'm a big foodie. I'm all for market innovation. I'm for progress. I understand the problems that we're trying to solve here. At the same time, me, human being, Andy, you know, I grew up in a culture. I'm from West Virginia. It's a big hunting thing. Like to this day, they get a week off for Thanksgiving. It's not for Thanksgiving. It's for deer season, but they put Thanksgiving because nobody would believe that you get a week off for deer season, but you got to, cause nobody's coming to school, you know, hunting and fishing culture, kill it, process it, eat it. That's just kind of ingrained. Even people that don't hunt anymore live it it's just kind of an ingrained thing, especially in the American culture of eating meat. Now I understand again, people have religious reasons or moral reasons. I completely respect people that have moral reasons over not wanting, you know, the slaughter of animals. I get it. Under look, I've been on the kill floor at the Smithfield plant. I get it. That's that that can make anybody a vegetarian. I understand it. But at the same time, foodie me cultural, there's a lot of people that probably feel that way to some degree of like, look. Meat comes from an animal, and that's that. Otherwise, you should never call it meat. We've seen this with the milk debate of labeling milk and oat milk and things like this. That's a cultural part of this argument, besides the policy that you're going to have to handle, right? That's that's
7: exactly right. I, and and hunting is a is an interesting rebuttal because um, hunting. I don't think it could be said that hunting has a is nearly as a drastic. Uh, Effect on the environment as traditional agriculture does. And so, and and I certainly don't want to prevent anyone from hunting. And I also don't think that traditional agriculture will ever completely go away, nor do I think it should. Um, When when you look at, when you really look at what these companies are able to do with the cultivated meat, it really kind of, it it kind of, uh, the best they can do right now is basically replicating ground beef. Or, or chicken and, uh, or pork. And a lot of the high quality cuts of meat can't replicate that. And maybe someday they will, but they can't right now. And for that reason, just that reason alone, um, traditional agriculture is, is certainly here to stay to some extent or another. But when, when you look at the scale of traditional agriculture today, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of uh, uh, trimming the fat, no pun intended, that, that can occur that can um, really take uh, the burden off of the environment um, and while at the same time maintaining a, a, a supply to, to meet the the demand for for meat. Um, and that's that's really what I'm I'm looking for is is to have kind of a diversified uh, a div- diversified world and when it comes to to where we get our meat from. And you know, we we could hunt, we could have traditional agriculture, but then we also have new option, um, and and maybe plant based plant based meats will improve, and maybe someday those will um, become appetizing. But I'm I'm less confident in that. I'm more confident in the cultivated meat.
2: Yeah, Micah Saitos joining us. You just brought it up, so let's discuss that part of it. Though is. How do we make this into a thing where it's an all of the above and not an either, or like we kind of started with, because what happens is somebody will get on like the impossible burger or they'll get onto the cultivated meat. You can see the potential there and like, Oh, well, this will just completely replace the other thing. So let's tilt the scales in favor of this with regulation or so on and so forth and thing. I don't think that's the right way to go here. Cause again, if we can innovate in the making of meat, there's been great innovation in the way we raise and process and do animal husbandry and animal processing for meat and for foodstuffs. You know, there's, you can innovate that as well. Just like we can innovate agriculture. We can innovate in all the areas at the same time and raise all boats here. How do we do that so that it doesn't become this dangling thing of like, oh, we're just going to get rid of all this other thing where again, American privilege, maybe America can do that in a couple other countries. Poor countries need their animal husbandry to survive, not just, but to survive. How do we prevent that conversation going off the rails like we've seen with some other innovations when it's come to environmental things, where you start leaving the developing world behind and even start causing harm to it?
7: I mean, it's kind of a cliche answer, but I, I think competition is really kind of a, a key is, is allowing for these different uh, meat sources to compete with each other. I mentioned earlier, there's something like four major meat packing companies in the world that control Something like 75 percent of of all meat production. Um, you mentioned Smithfield Foods, Tyson, um, JBS is another one. I can't remember the last one, but uh, I, th- that's not very much competition. Uh, we we need to to find policies that will allow for for greater competition, and that actually means in a, to a great degree deregulating a lot of the traditional agricultural operations um, and allowing. For for more competition from from smaller producers, now initially that that will actually uh, probably have you know probably harm the environment uh, at first because as you open up traditional agriculture you're opening up you know the potential for more for more uh, environmental impacts but I think in the long term you 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 then are incentivizing innovation. And this cultivated meat is the perfect example of that innovation. So we need to, to, and, and that's really what competition does: is it incentivizes innovation. And that's what we we don't see that very much in in agriculture today. Um, not just in in the in, in meat, but also in uh, in you know crop growth. Uh, there's there's very little competition. There's very little innovation. And uh, a lot of that stems for how we you know how we treat our water. Our, our water is. Is often subsidized and, and that's the most important resource that goes into agriculture. And you know, so these things all kind of run together.
2: Micah Safes, one of the reasons for that, and you just kind of hinted at it, there's been great consolidation in agriculture, both in animal agriculture and food agriculture. Bigger and bigger companies are taking up more and more of it. There's less mom and pops. There's less family-run farms, things like that. That's been the trend for several, several years. There's a lot of reasons for that. So we have this massive consolidation of traditional agriculture down to one by its definition, something that's being technologically innovated is going to come from one or two sources. And it's going to be a top down into the market type thing. So sure. is there going to be a danger of that becoming another funnel thing of this is just going to be through one or two companies, or do you see more innovation where once it gets to the market, then more people could pick up on this product and spread it more widely. Cause like, you know, meat has a lot of variations to it. You just mentioned it. There's ground meat there's steak, there's cut, you know, I'm a foodie, so I could talk a whole different, you know, there, you say steak, I think 30 different things, right? Yeah. Is that going to be an issue where it's just going to be like the impossible thing. They do the one thing and stop, or does it get into the marketplace and expand through other variables
7: you think? Well, I think that if we do it the right way, it would be more of a bottom-up thing. Uh, You, we allow for more competition in agriculture and, and if, if we allow for more competition in agriculture, then I think we we make room for these long-term investments. It's interesting. Uh, JBS, I think, is the biggest meat producer, I think, in the world. It's, it's a Brazilian uh, company, and they actually were producing this, these plant-based meats. They wanted to get into this, and, but they recently shut down their operation. And I, the reason for that is it wasn't making money. But I think they did it because they felt the pressure, the, the kind of the social pressure, to, to get into this. And then it fizzled because it didn't work. It wasn't a good idea. So I, I guess my point is that we, these changes shouldn't be made as like social justice movements where we pressure these corporations to implement these new kinds of, of, of innovations. Because um, they, they don't work. They, they're, they usually uh, are not for, that committed to them. And uh, they, it's often just kind of a form of virtue signaling open up competition, allow for, for more competition in agriculture. That may initially mean that that we are actually increasing the environmental impact. But over the long term, I think it actually, it, it will uh, incentivize these innovations from the bottom up. So I, I would say it's the second thing. Uh, if we do it the right way, it's the second thing, it, it, where it, it kind of is a bottom up um, these long-term investments that that a, a startup corporation might make, um, saying, "Hey, we 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 can't compete with Smithfield on uh, on on their beef. We we just can't we can't make those profit margins that Smithfield has because they're 200 times larger than we are. But what we can do is we can produce this cultivated meat uh, because we've we've invested some time and energy and money into it." And then as it grows, uh, the, the early adopters, early investors will allow this, this new product to become more affordable uh, to, to the general public.
2: Yeah, Micah Safeston. Okay, you end your piece with the same place. I'm going to end our discussion on this because what really matters is if the consumers in the marketplace don't want this, don't accept it and don't like it. It's not all the rest of this isn't going to matter in the long run. They got to make it taste. Look, I'm a foodie guy. If if it don't taste like steak and I'm wanting steak, it ain't going to work. That's just the, the blunt right part of it. Um, how do they avoid kind of the fobbles that some of the impossible meats have gone? Like you said, it's just unpalatable to a large segment of people. How do they avoid that? Because when you just start out calling, first of all, they're going to have to brand it something other than cultivated meat. Cause that yeah. ain't going to fly. Yeah. But what do you think that looks like if it's to be successful and get, cause you know, look, even if you watch a food network show where they're judging, they're like, look, it don't taste looking, tastes right, and doesn't smell right. it, you know, nobody's going to even get as far as eating the thing. How do we go from there on that when they get this stuff to the market?
7: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that there's probably kind of a tightrope they have to walk, where they they have to uh, make it make it taste like traditional meat. It needs to taste like, you know, the the cultivated beef needs to taste like beef. Cultivated chicken needs to taste like chicken. But at the same time, I I don't think you can you can just say that it's beef or just say that it's chicken because um, it's it's not exactly that. And so I, I I think that you have to kind of market it as an environmentally friendly alternative. Um, I don't think they should market it as a healthier alternative because um, it's not. It's it's not if it's if it's going to taste like beef, it's going to have the same uh, fat content as as beef. Um, you know, certainly there would be a, a leaner uh, options and, and, you know, fattier options, but uh, the, I, I think that uh, you kind of have to walk that tightrope of, of being very similar to the real thing, but at the same time, not, not pretending that it's the real thing. Um, and maybe, maybe, I think, focusing on, on the environmental impacts, because for a lot of people, that's a big deal and they they want to to do a, do their part to help the environment and um it, it, buying and investing in in cultivated meat is is a really good way to do that because the the impacts of agriculture on the environment are uh, are pretty substantial
2: any idea on a better branding name than cultivated meat you got any idea there uh, pitch me something
7: oh i think uh
2: uh by the way, while we're on the subject, I, <laughs> naming the naming the plant-based stuff to "impossible" was a bad marketing move just from the go. Just what, what, don't 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 start out with something that's a negative connotation word of impossible. That was a bad idea. I understand what they were shooting yeah. for, but that was a bad idea from the go. So give yeah. me something good here. What do you got? Oh,
7: that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think something like uh, like meat, or um, I mean, I think I think you probably have to. To break it down to beef, chicken, and pork, Um, uh, maybe new beef or new chicken. Uh, New is, is I think, probably has, has more positive connotations. Cultivated just sounds, yeah, that sounds too sterile. Uh, I agree with no, that, that, that. Scientific,
2: that. too. Maybe go back to Dogma where they did the Catholicism. Wow, we can do meat. Wow, or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll yeah. m- make it campy, maybe make it campy and a cult thing and see if it grows from there. Micah Safeson, uh, fun conversation because this is something that's going to pop up later and we get a little bit ahead of it. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you're doing, how they can follow you, uh, and what you normally eat on the average weekday since none of us can afford this stuff just quite yet. <laughs>
7: Yeah, uh, you can just follow me on Twitter, uh, Micah R Safesten, uh, Safsten, S A F S T E N. Just find me there. I, I mostly I, I write about water in the West and uh, the, the water, uh, the water shortage, the drought, uh, and and free market solutions to that. Um, and I mean, shoot, what I eat. Uh, I mean, one thing I am really curious, and I think this is is. Uh, cultivated meat will probably come for this last but i eat a lot of eggs and uh i i i have a hard time seeing how they could replicate that um they're just about perfect so
2: they're, they'll uh, be fine until they figure out whether they want to do the chicken first or the egg first there you go yeah. i'm sorry i couldn't help him Mike, it's safe <laughs> thanks for the time buddy appreciate it thank you yes sir All the music
0: on Hurtel is provided under a Creative Content License from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
5: Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church in Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Folks, well, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.